Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick note before we start, my folk horror novel Lost in the Garden is now out and available in all good bookshops. What if the village from Hot Fuzz started to behave like Annihilation's Area X? Three women have set off through the English countryside to track down a friend who has gone missing in the mysterious village of Almondby, the village they have been warned all through their childhood never to visit. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, don't go to Almondby. And now they too are going to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca said, eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, this is a dreamy and unsettling masterwork, one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Weselowski, Lost in the Garden is like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful, uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. And now, back to your regularly scheduled retro tube. Okay, ready when you are. Let me know. I'm... I was born ready. And welcome to RetroTube Archive Television Podcast, the show where Lincoln shows finest exports and Heather takes it in turns to play each other with some of our favourite shows of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. This week it's my turn again. I'm all binning off the high school hijinks of North London and heading over the pond to enjoy the adventures of the Impossible Missions Force, a secret government agency whose job it is to play very elaborate pranks on people. Yes, folks, it's time for Mission Impossible. Impossible initially ran for seven whole seasons from 1966 to 1973 and spanned a whopping 171 episodes, returning for one season of 35 episodes in 1988. Created by Bruce Geller and boasting one of television's most easily recognisable theme tunes written by Argentinian jazz pianist Lalo Schifrin, Mission Impossible regaled viewers week after week with the japes and daring do of the IMF, led in season one by Daniel Briggs, played by Stephen Hill, and then from season two onwards by Jim Phelps, played by Peter Graves. Seasons one to three also starred husband and wife acting powerhouse Barbara Bain and Martin Landau, part-time musician and child civil rights activist Greg Morris, and Mr Indianapolis 1954 Peter Lupus. Mission Impossible is a pretty new discovery for me, having only started watching it about a year ago, and it's quickly managed to become one of my favourite shows of all. But Adam, how well do you know the show, and did you enjoy the episodes we saw today? I haven't seen this, I think, since probably the early 90s. Certainly the last time I watched it was before the Tom Cruise film, the, the original one in 1996, I'm saying yeah. off the top of my head. That was it. I remember seeing that at the cinema and enjoying the first 20 minutes, which felt like an episode of Mission Impossible, then it just turned into an action film, an other action film. Yeah. But that first segment, I felt, was very Mission Impossibly. So I don't think I've watched it since then. Right. But it was shown on BBC Two, I'm guessing similar sort of time that the monkeys were re-shown on BBC Two. 
Yeah, it sounds like yeah. Mm. Um, I I'd never I'd never seen it. I didn't I don't remember it being shown in the nineties. The pilot episode was good. It was all right. I mean, it's probably a controversial opinion, but season one isn't the best. It was all right, and I kind of found myself liking it enough to to watch the rest of the series. By the end of the first series, I was like, I wasn't 100% sold on it. But as soon as series two started and when Peter Graves came into the cast, I think just because he, as a leader of the team, is is a better fit than Daniel Briggs was. From, from then on, I was just absolutely hooked. And I have been pretty obsessed with it, like, all year. As you know. I certainly do. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it's good. I did enjoy it, and I enjoyed it a lot watching it in the 90s they showed the peter graves series then i've never never seen the dan briggs stephen hill episodes before i feel like you're right in that it hadn't quite found its feet yet so i enjoyed it but i think i didn't enjoy it as much as i had enjoyed the later ones that's that felt like they were really a lot more confident and yeah dynamic and in their stride as a as a show and really like hitting every beat mm. precisely and knowing exactly what they're doing and having that confidence as a show is like, yes, this is what we're doing. We've, we've really hit our mark. So it's still finding its feet in this first series. I, th- I think it is. I also think, like I say, the characters of Daniel Briggs and Jim Phelps, they were not interchangeable in any way, shape or form. Dan- Dan's leadership is, it's not as, I would say, hands-on in the subsequent series Jim really gets sort of stuck into various different roles on the team yes Dan is pretty much a I'm going to send these people out to do these particular tasks and it's nothing to do with me just please don't die <laughs> yes. for, for practical reasons it turns out we'll we'll touch on that in a bit I think yeah I think we will it's shown that Jim is more of a friend to the rest of the team that they're, they're colleagues and friends rather than just Jim's just the team leader which is the kind of vibe that you get from Dan I think Dan's probably a little, I wouldn't say cold, but I would say cold, (laughs) if you know what I mean. I think Dan was my main problem with these. Yes, same. My feeling is, and this may be harsh, that Dan Briggs is the world's blandest man. (laughs) I mean, he's up there. So we watched uh, three episodes in total for this. We, we did. We, I don't know how much we're going to talk about each of them, but probably not a great deal about the first one. But so, but throughout all three episodes, so I'd watched well over two and a half hours of the show by this stage. Throughout all three episodes, my notes were saying, is Dan Briggs in this scene? Because I couldn't fix his face into my mind. Yeah. So this show is full of dark-haired men in grey suits wearing ties with side partings, and I'm thinking, is Dan Briggs one of these men? <laughs> I couldn't quite get him to stick. I think in terms of him being a spy, I think that's a that's a positive boom if he was an <laughs> actual true. spy. He's, yeah, I mean, he's the opposite of James Bond, isn't he? He doesn't just go around, I'm Briggs, Daniel Briggs. <laughs> I wish he had, that probably would have made him more interesting. <laughs> it would have. But yeah, no, he does have a bit of an every face. I mean, for a start, Peter Graves has the benefit of being blonde which just sets him apart from every other cast member in this entire show that's that's true that is true and also he's he's a big fella peter graves yes it's a particularly tall cast peter lupus is uh six foot four greg morris is like six foot three as is peter graves and martin lando six six foot one so they, they were they were big lads and uh barbara bain um barbara bain herself was like five foot nine so she was a she was a tall lady 
you know, you wouldn't find David McCallum in that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, and they just they just seem to look better after series one. It just everything just seemed to fit a lot better after series one. I don't know if it, if the problems that were going on behind the scenes sort of affected Stephen Hill's performance or... And it possibly, possibly just destabilised the whole thing anyway. Should we talk about Stephen Hill? Let's talk about... Let's talk about <laughs> Solomon Krakowski, a.k.a. Yes. Stephen Hill. Uh, my my big note about him is that he had nine children. Blimey. No hobbies. Nine children that he knew about. Bloody hell. <laughs> he wasn't that boring. <laughs> Do you think his partner said, "If I slept with this man already, I can't remember"? <laughs> I really hope so. <laughs> yes, definitely. That would that would be. That would be her kind of. Well, I mean, you know, he had two wives. He was very, he was very strict. He was, he was an Orthodox Jew, is what we're saying. Nobody's got a problem with this. Nobody, nobody would have a problem with this. No, all, all power to him for that. Fair play. Except. Except that he couldn't work on a Saturday because that's the Jewish Sabbath. He couldn't work after sunset on a Friday. Yes. So if they were still filming at sunset on Friday, he would just walk off set. Yes, he would. I understand this because I too. Um, in uh, I'm I'm a Jehovah's Witness, as you know, and I when I was working, and this is this is kind of a thing that we do. Um, we have a three-day convention once a year. It's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and a big thing for all of us who work um, is getting the Friday off so that we can attend the whole convention. Mm-hmm. We also need to make sure that we arrange our work schedule so that we are free for our midweek meeting and for our weekend meeting. So. For example, if your midweek meeting is on is on a Thursday, then you don't, you know, you try to arrange your work schedule so you're home in plenty of time to like have your tea, get yourself ready for the meeting, and go to the meeting. Which which is one thing, you know, you you, you arrange you arrange yourself and your work to to accommodate you so that you can worship as you are meant to and as you want to, which is fine. I 100% get this. Mm-hmm. What I would not do is is accept a job where I knew that I would have to work all over a weekend knowing that I needed to devote one of those days or a part of one of those days specifically to worship and then yes. get annoyed that and I was working walk off on a weekend because I'd already agreed to do that. I can beat both of you, though, because uh, I'm not religious, but I am a Formula One fan. So if there's a live race, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in, in the middle of filming a scene, I'm walking off set because, baby... The British Grand Prix is about to start, and I'm not missing the lights out for anyone. Very much, very much this. <laughs> yes, but um, it uh, yes, it I I would imagine that this would have unstabilized and unbalanced the whole of the team feel of it, and I think also this is probably why, uh, other than the fact he doesn't have a very memorable face, mm. he's also not in it very much because either he just lets them get on with it. And he stays back, so it's the rest of the... So, essentially, the main character is just taking a back seat and everyone else is doing things. Or the character is in it a lot, but he's in disguise as someone else. So, the Dan yeah. Briggs is being played by a different actor, the one he's in disguise as, because there's a lot of mask work, or apparent mask work in Mission Impossible, so often yeah. the characters are playing 
being played by other actors. Mm, yeah, there is that. There's also, during the filming of one of the episodes, he got really quite badly injured. Oh, crumbs. He couldn't be on screen as much again. So they had to do an awful lot of jigging um, to make it look as though he was still in it. Although tensions were really, really fraught, so he was he was he was offset as much as earthly possible. In fact, there's one of the later episodes in the series, Barbara Bain's character, Cinnamon Carter, she is the one who receives the assignment. Dan doesn't even feature. Just Gosh. not at all. Just like let's pre- let's pretend he's not here. It was a very different kind of a feel, and it it was tense, and it wasn't tense in the tightly written way. Although it was quite tightly written, the writing does gets exponentially better as the series goes on. That's kind of why I wanted us to watch the first series, so that we could kind of not so that we could pan Stephen Hill. I want to make it clear right yeah. now. No, I, I think he's probably a, a very good actor. Yeah, I just can't remember which one he was. <laughs> It was the it was the dark hair guy in the grey suit. Yes, <laughs> that narrows it down. I think Mission Impossible has almost been entirely eclipsed in the public consciousness by the Tom Cruise films, and it probably is mm. the most successful transfer to a big screen remake reimagining out of any anything because there was a big rash and it's still going on but particularly in the nineties there was a big rash of taking the sixties shows that the boomer executives remembered and grew up with and then turning them into big properties and franchises yes and a lot of them didn't do much or go beyond one film so the fugitive was quite a big hit but it was just the one film but the mission impossible movie franchise started in 1996 and it's still going on now with the same lead actor amazingly still running around still breaking his little ankles all sorts of things his tiny tiny little ankles (laughs) little twigs and Star Trek is also an ongoing successful movie franchise, but I'm not including that one because also it had its own movies, yeah. which Mission, Mission Impossible, I think, didn't. So no. the original series had its own movies and then Next Generation had its own movies and then it also had other TV stuff as well. And then it got reinvented as the Chris Pine movies, the J.J. Abraham ones, mm. which were also hugely successful. But I think it's Star Trek is a big, a huge thing of its own and it's it's it kind of is a, it's its own topic yeah you and it's never going to get eclipsed by any film version in the no. public consciousness whereas mission impossible tv series is quite a limited run and then the films are very different as well which the star trek films aren't and they can't be by definition i kind of need to to mention that the uh, the original cast of mission impossible loathed detested and abhorred the film version Oh, no. (laughs) Greg Morris said, and I quote, it's an abomination. Peter Graves walked out from the premiere. So did Martin Landau. They all hated it. They all hated it with with a burning passion. (laughs) Crumbs. Yeah. I mean, it's not Mission Impossible. No, that's kind of their big problem. Also, Peter Graves' big problem was that the actor playing Jim Phelps ended up being the baddie. Oh, is that... um... John Voight. Yeah, he ended up being the baddie and uh... Peter Graves was not a fan of that. And I can understand it because Jim Phelps is like the least turning into a random baddie character <laughs> that's out there. Uh... I've only seen the first Mission Impossible film and I enjoyed it fi- fine. Uh, I haven't seen any of the others, but I hear some of the others are good action films, but they're not Mission Impossible. No, they're not. Because they don't have these small but 
complicated, very tight, low-key plot with lots of people with masks on pretending to be other people. Uh, it's like a Darren Brown illusion, almost. I think Der- Darren Brown specials have more of the spirit of Mission Impossible than, than the movies do. I think possibly. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are masks and things in Mission Impossible. Um, I mean, technology's improved a lot, so it's a bit more smooth. Mm. I personally don't have a problem with the Mission Impossible films. I watched those before I watched the show. And I do, I prefer the show, but I don't have a, I've not got, I've got a problem with the, with the films. I like films very well. I haven't seen the last two, but the others have been loads of fun. It is, it is literally just licensed for Tom Cruise to just leap off stuff. <laughs> that's, the, that's the entire plot of all of them. Tom Cruise leaps off stuff. <laughs> anyway. So, yes. Mission Impossible Series 1. I guess you've already explained in the intro what it's about, but for anyone who's unfamiliar with the 60s shows, and I think probably there are people who will be because the films have so eclipsed the TV shows, but it is essentially them carrying out... Yeah, like you say, big pranks, stroke, illusions, but you see it all all behind the scenes. So we're we're with the people. It's like the opposite. It's like the reverse angle on a Jonathan Creek episode. So Jonathan Creek episode is about here's a weird, inexplicable thing that's happened, and the main characters have to work out how it's happened. Whereas Mission Impossible is we have to bamboozle these other people. By creating a weird, inexplicable thing yes, that will really mess with their heads. And here's how we're doing it. So it's the reverse angle of that. They love messing with people's heads. Sometimes they're quite cruel about it. And you kind of think, oh, oh, that's a bit much. But then you do have to think, yeah, the people that they're bamboozling and messing with are really evil. Yes. Uh, I mean, we'll get to that in one of the episodes, yes, quite we... whether they overstep the mark. And I think by modern standards, do by quite a considerable way. They leap. But I don't know whether, that, like, this was a thing that they managed to more successfully balance in later series as well. Because I don't remember it being quite as bleak as one of these episodes <laughs> turned out to be. No, no, I don't. No, I think I think they probably... And again, I think it's potentially because of who took over from from Dan. Because I think mm. I think Dan would be totally fine with this happening and um, would be like, do you know what? He's a baddie. He deserves it. Jim would be like, yeah, he's a baddie. He probably deserves to have some kind of comeuppance. But whoa, <laughs> <Love> mama. <laughs> Exactly, that would have been his entire phrase. So you sent me two episodes to watch from series one, with a third, if I had the time. It was episodes 24 and 25, which are called The Train and Shock. Yes. However, I watched The Train, and I couldn't think of any notes, (laughs) I couldn't think of anything to say about it. No! Which which baffled me, because The the Train is my favourite episode of the season. Yeah, and it wasn't that it was bad, or it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I just couldn't think of anything to say about it, other than general things about the Mission Impossible format. But the other two episodes, we watched Shock, and then we watched episode eight, which was called The Ransom. I chose these three different ones, mainly because the first season is 28 episodes and they're all so different. And although it's a long season, a lot of the episodes are quite samey and are easily forgettable, but these three, I found, were very different to the other episodes and I couldn't choose between them. I chose The Train because it's my favourite and yeah. because it's the first time we see them do a prank. I can't really call them. It's the first time we see them do a prank that it, where they put somebody into a confined atmosphere and make them feel like they're not in a confined atmosphere. Wow, it took them a while. They do that a few times throughout oh. the season, throughout the whole series run, and every every single time they've got somebody in a confined space and they're like, 
putting in sound effects and making whatever vehicle they're <laughs> yeah, in that shake. That was quite fun watching. Um, whenever, whenever they're doing stuff like that, I just lap the hell of that up. Shock was just pretty brutal. And I chose The Ransom because it is a very Dan Briggs-centric episode and you get to see what little there is of his personality come to the fore. So that's why I chose those. But you weren't, you weren't, you weren't a big fan of The Train. Oh, no, it wasn't that. I just couldn't think of anything to say. Oh, fair enough. I watched it and it was very pleasant and diverting and <laughs> quite exciting, but I just couldn't think of anything to, interesting to say. Well, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Some men on a train getting bamboozled with projectors and recordings and things. It was good. Yeah, I enjoyed. I enjoyed the train. That was all. That's all I have to say. Yes, I enjoyed it. Good. <laughs> I think it's possibly one of my favourites because Peter Lupus, who plays my favourite character, Willie Armitage. I'm gonna I'm gonna come out right here and right now and say it. I love Willie. And I said it was straight face. I'm quite proud of myself. Uh, he actually gets a line in this. It doesn't happen very much. Mm. He. It, He's quite an underused character for the first few series. After Leonard Nimoy leaves in series five, in series six and seven, Peter Lupus gets a lot more screen time and actual lines Ooh. and things to do and things to say. And I love that. I love that. I think I do think he was the most underused actor in the first at least three series. Um, but I guess when you've got Martin Landau as your lead guy and then you've got Oscar winner Martin Landau. Guy, yeah, I, I guess you're not gonna you're not gonna use the other guys so much. <laughs> no. But I think that's sort of what makes that character cool is that he's not really front and centre. And often no. my favourite characters in something are the ones that like are a bit more background. It's like, oh, he, he seems cool. She seems cool. Because they're not Napoleon Solo. They're yes. Ilya Kuryakin. It's like, oh, that, that's the cool one. Yeah, I think so. I, and I love the chemistry on screen that Willie and Barney have. They're both kind of, you know, Rollin Hand and Cinnamon Carter are the ones who will go off. <laughs> some bonkers names, aren't they? Rollin Hand and Cinnamon Carter. Of course. <laughs> and they will go off and do, they will be the main action, but Bonnie and Willie are the ones who are backstage, who are like making things happen in a very real way. Like if it wasn't for them, then Rollin and Cinnamon couldn't do the things that they do. And it's really nice that the team is showcased like that rather than just focusing on the main event. You'll get a lot of dialogue-free bits of just William Barney just setting setting things up and whatnot. So this has a very famous theme tune. It's possibly one of the few shows, and I'd say also Twilight Zone and Hawaii Five-O, where the theme tune is probably more famous than this show itself I think so. and it can be like the twilight zone theme tune it can be used in lots of situations like squirrels doing an assault course to get some peanuts oh yeah i love that advert yes <laughs> <laughs> and anything vaguely mysterious or unsettling you can go do 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 and people will know exactly what you mean even if they've never seen the twilight zone it's true and if you're doing anything a bit sneaky and a bit you know a bit complex don't 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 and if you're going to hawaii and you're surfing of course ba, 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 ba. and i we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here i don't think i've ever seen an episode of hawaii 50 exactly very much this it lives on does the lalo Schifrin theme tune the other famous thing that is often referenced that people would get even if they have never seen the show is this tape will self-destruct in 10 seconds good evening mr briggs this is carl wilson a special U.S. envoy who is about to succeed in effecting a vital exchange agreement between our government and a neutral country important to us. This man, Peter Keary, a notorious enemy agent, 
has kidnapped Wilson and replaced him with an imposter. Kiri's purpose must be to discredit Wilson and so prevent the exchange agreement from being ratified. Wilson is still alive and being held prisoner, so any move against the imposter would bring Wilson's instantaneous death. Your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to save Wilson and to put Kiri out of action. As always, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This recording will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Dan. And apparently, according to Wikipedia, this was the first usage of the term self-destruct. Oh, well, there you go. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it, it coined it. I think I kind of would like to mention, especially about the first season cast, or the earlier cast, it was a really rather uh, diverse cast for the 1960s. I like the fact that it was diverse as it was. I mean, in the first in the first season, obviously, two Jewish men, a black man, and a um, mixed race Asian man mm. uh, were all of the leads, and a woman. All of all of the people, and I really liked about Cinnamon Carter. I don't know how much we saw of that in the episodes that we watched, but the thing I do like about Cinnamon Carter is that she isn't. She isn't just there to pretty the place up and to be the distraction. She has really big jobs to do in, in the majority of the, the episodes. She's not flimsy fluff at all in any way, shape or form. She is pretty, she's a pretty ruthless spy and I think she's, I think she's incredible. Absolutely. <laughs> Although she does still get um, the obligatory 60s Lady Vaseline lens reserved for all women and Captain Kirk. Again, for people who aren't familiar with American 60s television, they had a convention, which seems really, really odd now when we see it through 2021 eyes, that the ladies would be in soft focus for their close-ups. So there'd be just a sort of Vaseline-y haze over the close-ups of the women, but not for the men unless it was Captain Kirk. And it's just really odd seeing it now, isn't it? I mean, you sort of get used to it when you watch a lot of those shows because they were shown a lot in the 80s. But again, watching them now... It's like, this is a really odd convention. I promised you a rant about Ghostbusters 2016, and this is the point at which it should come. And I have to say up front, I've got nothing against Lady Ghostbusters. I like Lady Ghostbusters. I'm all for Lady Ghostbusters. I have no objection to a film that is really not very good at all, bearing the Ghostbusters name. That doesn't bother me. In fact, I quite enjoyed it. It was quite an entertaining film. But here's the thing. There are four... Ghostbusters. Three of the Ghostbusters are very clever, educated scientists who are experts in their field, even if they're a bit socially awkward and weird. Uh, The other Ghostbuster, she is a train driver on the subway. She's very hip and streetwise and she knows what's going on on the street. Three of the Ghostbusters are white ladies. One of the Ghostbusters is a black lady. Can you guess which one is the streetwise train driver? Um, uh, uh, one of the white ones? <laughs> You'd be wrong. Would I? Oh my god! <laughs> this, is, this is such shock. Gasp. And this is, this is 2016. This isn't very long ago. Oh yeah, it's a, it really worked. Leslie Jones is really good. She played the character really well, but it is entirely that oh Hollywood black lady character. She's not a scientist. She could have been a scientist. She's a subway train driver who knows the streets and she's hip and she's sassy and she's got a smart mouth. So 50 years previously, we have a team of experts, uh, one of whom is black. One of these experts is a muscle-bound, strongman, weightlifter type. Is that the black man? No, No, it's not. not. 
The black team member is the technical expert. He's the brainy one. He's the one who knows all the equipment. Uh, is it yeah. that hard to do? No, it's not that hard to do. And the reason that Greg Morris actually took the role as Barney Collier is because of how Barney Collier was written. It was written. It, it wasn't written to a race. Mm. It could have easily been played by a Scandinavian guy or an Irish guy. Um, it didn't matter. And that was that was what drew him to to the role. And you know, he played it absolutely spectacularly. Again, more so in the later seasons when you know after Martin Landau and Nimoy had left. And there was a lot more for, for Greg and Peter to do. Some of Greg Morris's acting is absolutely just stunning, stunning work. And uh, I think, I don't think the show would have worked without him. No, he's very good. He's a standout. I love Greg Morris a whole lot. So there. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> There's representation because I'm sure actually because of the opportunities that there were in 1960s America, there probably weren't very many black technical experts no. working at that level of espionage but this is a fantasy tv show so we have visibility so it becomes because barney is on tv every week being extremely clever and extremely competent it then becomes a visibility thing and it then normalizes this idea of oh we can have a black guy who is incredibly smart and incredibly competent and it's not a big deal absolutely so then it gradually changes the way people feel about these things that he's not just a boxer or a street thug or a pimp yeah i 100 100 agree with you here can i just quickly while while we're talking about the individual actors I need I need to tell you this thing about Peter Lupus because this absolutely staggers me, right? Okay. <clears throat> Peter Lupus holds the Guinness World Record for weightlifting endurance. Mm. He lifted 77,560 pounds over the course of 24 minutes. And that works out to 5,540 stone. Do you know when he set this record? When he was 75. <laughs> Crikey. He broke his own world record, which was where he lifted 76,280 pounds or 5,448 and a half stone over 27 minutes. And he made that record when he was 70. Wow. I think he's immortal. He's, he's quite remarkable. <laughs> I think he's going to be, he's going to be 90. He's going to be 90 in this June coming. He's probably still weightlifting somewhere. Probably, <laughs> probably going around bench, bench pressing buses left, right, and centre. <laughs> Just like, hey, why not? You've got to keep your hand in. <laughs> so we watched the train. It was about a train. Yeah, uh, I I watched it and had nothing to say in particular, but it was fine. So officially, the first episode we watched was called Shock, and yes, we did. To my mind, even though this is a really good show. This is a really remarkably ill-judged episode. It's a bit brutal, isn't it? It's too much, man. It's too much. I think it does smack of a show that hasn't found its feet yet and is still trying to find its direction and its thing that it does. Yes. Because it's essentially... Well, the story is... Well, the story is complicated is what it is. It is a bit. Carl Wilson has been kidnapped, probably by Mike Love. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I think so. So he's like an American ambassador. He's been kidnapped and been replaced by a man in a latex mask to look like Carl Wilson, in which case our MIF people then have to impersonate the person impersonating 
Carl Wilson. It's very complicated. Yeah, so it's an actor pretending to be an actor pretending to be an actor pretending to be an ambassador, essentially. So that so they have to then convince the guy who, the enemy agent who is the handler of the fake Carl Wilson, that they are really the fake Carl Wilson, but they're not. They're a fake, fake Carl Wilson. But they're not even the real Carl Wilson pretending to be a fake Carl Wilson. There's three. No. There are three Carl there Wilsons three in Carl- this. Will the real Carl Wilson please stand up? Uh, and so mind-bending is an understatement, mm. but this isn't the problematic part. This part's all fine. No. This is very this is very enjoyable. Yes. What they also do, they MIF kidnap uh, actor, this Eastern European actor called Gord. The original fake Carl Wilson. Yeah, they, they kidnap the original fake Carl Wilson and they essentially torture him. They... Don't even essentially torture him. They torture him. They actually torture him. They give him electroshock therapy in order to wipe his memory. Yes. They threaten him with further electroshock. Well, it's not even therapy. It's just electroshock torture. They psychologically torture him. They try and convince him he's insane. I am Josef Gort. Do you understand? Gort! Mr. Kroll! No, let me go. Let me go. What are you doing to me? No! No, I don't want that! No! Terribly sorry. I thought we'd made some progress. Take him back to isolation. Why won't you believe me? I told you who I am. Why won't you believe me? Why don't you believe me? Why don't you believe me? Let me go. Let me go! No! Please, please, don't leave me in here. Please! To the point, they they put him in a small padded cell and play frightening screams and noises over an intercom in order to think that he's hallucinating so that he loses his mind. They don't hold back, do they? They do some awful things. Geneva Convention? Never heard of it. But it's very hard to be on their side. It, It is. They are mean. They are so mean. And this guy is essentially just an actor doing his job. He's not a master. He's not an actual baddie. He's not one of the masterminds. He's he's an Eastern European actor who's been parachuted in to do this job to impersonate Carl Wilson. Device, Mr. Kroll. We have used it on you before. Put him on the table, please. No, I don't want it. Come on. No, no, no. no. Thanks. Right. Dr. Why are you doing this to me? We are trying to help you, Mr. Kroll, but so far we have not been able to reach you. These treatments should make you more amenable to therapy. I want the other doctor. Please. Well. I do not know if I can arrange it, but I will speak to him. This is your last chance. Use it. Too many more shocks and you'll be here forever. Well, what seems to be the trouble, Mr. Kroll? I, uh, I don't want the machine. But you won't talk to us. I will. I promise. 
And then at the end, I wasn't quite clear on this. I read some reviews of it. Do they then just murder him in cold blood when he's unconscious at the end? That is a really good question. I think I think they do. And then they wheel the real Carl Wilson out. So the end of this involves it having to seem like the real Carl Wilson has committed suicide and the villains had the idea that they were going to murder Carl Wilson to make it look like suicide but IMF get there first and replace the real Carl Wilson with the original fake Carl Wilson <laughs> yes well the, the second fake, fake, fake Carl Wilson pretends to be the original who's... fake Carl Wilson <laughs> <laughs> yeah the fake fake Carl Wilson is played by Jim not Jim by Dan in this I yes. can't even remember the man's name um <laughs> He's played. He's played by Dan, and, and the reason that it's this one poor actor playing three different roles, I bet he was confused as well, is because I think this was the episode that was filmed after Stephen Hill had his accident on set. Right. So he he just wasn't anywhere to be seen. He was off like getting treatment and recovering and whatnot. What happened to him? He was doing a stunt and it went wrong. I think he may have broken an arm or something. I can't can't quite remember. But there was there was a significant injury and he couldn't. He couldn't act. Well, he could act, but he couldn't go to work. Yeah. So anyway, at, at, at the climax of this, they have to replicate the villain's plan to murder the real Carl Wilson. And they apparently do that by simply murdering the unconscious fake Carl Wilson. The way it's shot is that you see Martin Lander take out a gun point it in the fake Carl Wilson's direction and you hear a bang. And the bang is what the gunshot is what draws all the people. There's a a, a party, a reception going on next door and the gunshot is what gets all the people into the room to witness the suicide of Carl Wilson. So when I watched it, I'd assumed he'd just fired the gun near the guy's head to get all the people to come into the room and the fake Carl Wilson is lying across the desk anyway because he's unconscious. But I read a couple of reviews and both reviews seem to think that he simply murdered an unconscious man. So it it depends how you read it. I'm not 100% sure that 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 is what happened. The way that I saw it was that like he was was made up to look as though he'd been shot. Yes, that's what I thought. Even the the angle that Martin Landau held the gun at, it wouldn't have gone anywhere near him it looked like it was like he was aiming at the wall i think that's probably one up for the for debate but i i don't think they did kill the fake carl wilson i think the fake carl wilson just needed an awful lot of therapy afterwards i think the way it was filmed i'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt but even nonetheless they do torture him to quite an extreme degree you feel like you're going mental it's a really hard scene it's harsh man it, it is and it's certainly not the kind of thing you you would expect from normal, comfortable, glossy 60s spy drama where nothing bad really happens. Bad things do happen in Mission Impossible. I think probably shock is as, is as bad as it gets. This is from a time when you couldn't have a, a lady on screen who was showing her navel because it was deemed too sexy. You couldn't have a lady on screen who was showing her actual face that wasn't blurred. <laughs> you couldn't! <laughs> but it turns out that it, it was a time that you could show people psychologically and physically torturing a man until he went insane and that was 100% fine. That's legit. I really enjoy the um, the fetishistic rituals of substitution. I'll say it again. The fetish. Try. It's a tongue twister. The fetishistic rituals of subterfuge. No, I can't say it. I really enjoy the fetishistic rituals of subterfuge. Do you? I do. It's easy for you to say. <laughs> 
So it's sort of like the same as heist movies. I wonder if this TV series is actually a really big influence on modern heist movies. Things like Ocean's Eleven, where a lot of time and a lot of love is spent just watching them plan it and set it up and all the fiddly little things that they do. It's almost sort of works like a dance routine. It's also choreographed and then screwing things together and hiding themselves in air vents and setting the whole thing up and it felt very heist movie. There are in a lot of episodes moments where everything seems to be going wrong and you think, oh my God, this time, this time, they're not going to get away with it, this time they're going to get caught. People's lives are like genuinely in peril and even they're like oh no we've screwed this up but somehow it all turns out to be part of the big plan yes that's all good that is the big sort of the big deception for the bad guys to make them think that they've and that's a very heist movie thing as well there's always that in, in a good tightly written heist movie there's always those moments where you think oh no the plans change it's all going wrong but actually it's it is, it's baked into the plan then we didn't realize i like in this and most of the episodes that you don't know what the plot will be ahead of time so you see them preparing for it but you don't know exactly what it will be so you, you just watch it unfold knowing what the preparations have been it fills you every single week because you think because because you're there at the beginning you know when um there's the iconic sort of bit at the beginning of every episode where dan or jim will have the impossible missions file and they'll get out pictures of every single person who is in the impossible missions task force and they'll choose their team and then there's a big sort of this is how we're going to do the heist this is how we're going to do the thing have you have you got this bit sorted have you got that bit sorted what do we do about this and there's a big conflab so you sat there you sat there in the room with them or you feel like you sat there in the room with them while all of this is unfolding and you think yeah I know what's happening. This is going to be great. They're going to they're going to do a thing with that. They're going to do a thing with that, and this is going to work that way. Oh God, yeah, I can see how this is going to work, and you don't know how it's actually going to work because everything takes a totally different turn, and you're like, I don't actually know what's going on. But then by the the very final, not even scene, just like the very final shot, everything just works out, and then they walk off or they drive off into the sunset, and they've like saved the world again, and it's just. It's amazing how you never know. You you feel like you're you're there with them, but really you're you're just as clueless as everybody else. Only they know. It's amazing. Yeah. It's remind you are you familiar with the numbskulls? No. I think it's the Beezer. It's one of the the four comic books that are been around i don't think they're all around now but at least since the 60s that came out of dc thompson's in dundee the beano is the famous one that had de- uh, that had um dennis the menace beano dandy topper and beezer and i think the beezer had the numbskulls which is a sort of comic strip about people who uh lived inside a man's head and worked him so it's like the, there's the brain department the eyes department the nose department the mouth department and so you'd see a cross-section of this man's head and these little guys in there working him and this is like the numbskulls working a tv thriller particularly like the train episode yes you see all the little guys inside the tv working it and working this this 60s thriller i love stuff like i just i just love that it, you do feel like you're there it's weird even though you know you're not because it was filmed like 50 60 years ago you still feel like oh my goodness this is this is a thing that i'm helping with i'm helping them by watching this i think so yeah that is why i particularly love episodes like like the train it's weird because you would feel it would be exactly the same thing just five or six different times but it's not and one of the things that occurred to me while watching it is that apart from actually apart from the final episode we watched which is episode eight it's almost entirely plot and it's possibly unique in being 
entirely plot and there's no interpersonal drama there's no there's barely any emotional drama in anything like that it it is this team who are just doing the thing they do and it's incredibly stripped down it's just like a a clock mechanism so they're not there's no bickering there's no petty jealousies between the the team or anything like that obviously there's a drama within you know within the situation that they're manipulating yeah it's often like a a foreign power and some kind of political intrigue going on so there's drama there but it's very very business-like they come in they get the brief and they go off yeah it's not like star trek with bones and spot insulting each other and being delightful couple and all of that sort of thing it's very just straight into the point and it's it's just A, B, C, D, plot, 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 plot. Even to the extent that, I mean, it's hinted quite a few times over series, over the series one to three. It's hinted a little bit that there's a bit of a, a little bit of tension maybe between Rollin and Cinnamon. And they are played by a married couple who at the time were very, 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 very much in love. But you have to really look hard to find the, to find the flirting between Rollin and Cinnamon. It's, it's nice that there's not a lot of faffing. They just get, right into it it is and it can work but bickering can also get quite tiresome and anyone who, who's watched the, the colin baker era of doctor who will probably know quite how tiresome bickering can get just just for the sake of drama let's put bickering into it yeah bickering is a drama no it's i said this in the um, escape into night episode that we did that writers can take this too literally this this idea that drama is conflict and conflict is drama and Therefore, just everyone has to be in conflict all the time. But conflict doesn't... It's not literally just people bickering all the time. There are many different types of conflict. To be fair, bickering really should be used as more of a comedy tool. <laughs> yes. I'm just reading a note here. Uh, this is in the second episode that I've watched. As uh, a man sneaking around. Is this Dan Briggs? It is! <laughs> <laughs> we found him. He's like, where's Wally? So... Carl Wilson and all the fake Carl Wilsons in this are played by James Daly, uh, who looks familiar. I don't think I've seen him in anything. I think, to me, he's most significant of being the father of Tyne Daly from Cagney and Lacey. She was one of Cagney and Lacey. I don't know which one. I mean, I know which actress she is, but I don't know which, whether she's Cagney or Lacey. She's both. She's both Cagney and Lacey, yes. Uh, she's called Tyne Daly. I don't know if, if James Daly was a fan of Linda's Farn. And the other actor playing Kiri who mm. essentially looks like a scheming egg. <laughs> he he actually he looks more like the musician Carl Wilson if Carl Wilson was bold. He he has more of a Carl Wilson face, but he is played by the very fragrantly named, the very floral named Sorrel Brook. Oh, that's beautiful. So you'd like to have a, a picnic or something. Yeah, let's go to Sorrel, Sorrel Brook, Brook for a quick picnic. He'll be famous with most people listening to this. He played Boss Hog in Dukes of Hazard. He most certainly did. Yes, which like Boss Hog being played by somebody called Sorrel Brook is very disconcerting. He plays Kiri in this. Uh, Who is the the handler of both the real and the fake Carl Wilson. This whole thing is ridiculous, I'm leaving. So what's going on with uh, Carl Wilson now? God only knows. Oh, oh dear. They're doing this heist in some some fictionalised Eastern European country where there are two smartly dressed American boys pretending to be European street urchins. Oh, yes. And they, I think they're having a go at doing an accent. Fido, look. What is it? Let's find out. There's someone in there. So what? Come on. 
And there's a bit of an unintentionally creepy bit where they discover what's going on. They rumble the plot. So Willie Armitage has to chase them. The way he gets them not to tell the authorities, he says, if you tell on me, I'll go to jail. I'm not going to hurt you, boys. I don't want you to tell on me. Boys, please. If you tell, they send me to jail. All right. Good boys. And a grown man saying this to two boys doesn't sit comfortably <laughs> in this day and age. That was his one line in the whole series. Leave him alone. It was like the one time he actually got to do acting. Towards the end, when there's a Carl Wilson in the reception, and meanwhile the good guys are trying to move another Carl Wilson out of the back room, the office room, and replace him with a different Carl Wilson. I'm just thinking, this is like a low, a low. <laughs> Yes. Yes, the portrait of the fallen Madonna with the big boobies is in the candle (laughs) with the handle. Exactly. It was very much like a farce, but played absolutely deadly seriously. It was. It was. There was an an awful lot of lugging bodies about. One of the things of watching a good bit of anything, really, but particularly thrillers and horrors and that sort of genre, is that it suspends the rules of the mundane everyday life that the audience have and lets you almost like be part of a game. And I think... Mission Impossible does this to a massive degree, does it to the nth degree. It suspends every single one of the the rules of everyday life to the point of absolutely dismantling everyday life and replacing it with one that they've cobbled together in a warehouse somewhere. And literally that is what happens in a lot of episodes. It creates two alternate realities, one for the plot and then one for us. Even these early episodes where they're not 100% sure what they're doing with themselves, even in these early episodes... It is so, the writing is so strong and the the pacing of it especially is so tight. It's ridiculous. It feels like, every episode feels like a feature film and it's only a 48-50 minute show. Yeah, and this is what makes it feel like a Darren Brown special because that's what he does essentially is, is dismantle a person's reality and absolutely controls what they then believe their reality to be. And this is what these people are doing. Absolutely. Anyway, so that was that. The... Other episode that I asked you to watch if you had time was episode eight. And I did have time. You did have time, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Um and this episode is the ransom where there is no there is no given assignment. This is, no, this one felt a bit this different. Is quite an unusual thing. They didn't receive an assignment from the usual source, but the daughter of a friend of Daniel Briggs was put into some very immediate danger and the only thing Dan could think of doing was calling the gang together. What do you want, Egan? Well, you know he breaks. Good. I read the papers. Well, then you must read that Augie Gorman testifies to the grand jury tomorrow. Yes, I hope he ruins you. You're going to make sure that doesn't happen, Briggs. What's the matter, Egan? Can't your boys get to him? Well, the district attorney has him locked in a hotel room downtown. Lots of police around. Nobody can get him out of there, except you, Briggs. Get to the point. You have some reason to think I'll help you. You recognize Sandy Forrester, the daughter of George Forrester? Somebody picked her up on the way to school this morning. Since you're a friend of her father's, I figured you should be the one to break the news to him. Not even you. That's right, a trade. Sandy Forrester for Augie Gorman. 
You got less than 24 hours, Briggs. If Augie Gorman makes it to that grand jury or a Forrester talks to the police, that girl dies. I've got nothing to lose. So obviously, even though Dan assembles the team and they all agree to help, and he he doesn't dupe the team. Luckily, he he he's very transparent about what they're doing and why they're there. Obviously, he's not keen on doing this, so he then attempts to manipulate the situation in order for him to rescue the girl, but also make sure that the villains don't bust Orky Gorman out of jail. Not least because they know that they're going to murder him, so they just want to silence him. And the best way to do that is to have him killed off, and they'll probably also kill off Dan and any other witnesses as well because he Egan is just that kind of stand-up fellow he's just he's certainly what I would describe as a bad so the opening scene is uh, <laughs> I've written down a man is playing snooker with two white balls and one red ball is this Dan Briggs it is <laughs> yes it is <laughs> I feel like we need to get t-shirts made saying are you Dan Briggs is this Dan Briggs <laughs> Oh, damn Briggs. So then a man in ridiculous green sunglasses menaces him and everyone is very grumpy. Yes, it's a very grumpy episode. It's a very grumpy, and with good reason. Very grumpy. It's yes. not a very sweaty episode. Yeah, everybody seems quite sweaty. Yeah, the gangsters are sweaty, yeah. the little girl's sweaty. And then at one point they turn the heating up in a uh, in the hotel in which Augie Carmichael... No, what's his name? Gorgon. Augie Gorgon. Or, no, Augie Gorman. Yeah. He's. It's not a real name. It's not a real name. No, nobody's called Augie. <laughs> no. If you are called Augie and you're listening to this and that's your real name, then I apologise. Uh, they, they turn the heating up in the hotel in which Augie Gorman is staying in in order to get him to drink some water which has been poisoned in order to... to he looks like he's had a stroke. Yeah. So that they can then send him to the hospital. But then he's sweating and the policemen who's looking after him are sweating. And because IMF are all in the same hotel, they're all sweating. So everyone's sweating. Everybody's sweating. It probably stinks on set. The makeup department with their little spray bottle, they're working overtime, they're going on... St- spraying on the sweat just everybody is ringing sopping wet and it's minging and then of course because because it's the 60s everybody's also smoking yes in their gray suits because the the imagery didn't didn't smell bad enough everybody smokes as well as sweats it says here i can't tell these brill cream wearing technicolor tan men apart they should all wear different color sunglasses or at least clothes that aren't suits so it it wasn't just dan this episode there's a lot more a lot more middle-aged dark-haired men in gray suits i mean it was the 60s surely you'd think one of them would wear a brown suit (laughs) you'd think wouldn't you yeah at least have sideburns or something something we could cling on to but no they're all around 40 45 but look about 55 just to continue the theme my next note is is that one sandy's dad (laughs) we've met him already but i genuinely don't know who this is they all they do all look very much the same i don't i I don't know where they get these people from (laughs) so he chooses some uh, some other so the, the regular agents but he has another two or three in the team as well who we haven't seen before they very much have the vibe of being red shirts It turns out they're not. No, they're not. They don't get killed, but they could be. It's just the regular team with a couple of strangers in there, like listening intently. It's like, uh oh. Yeah. They're not long for this world. But actually, it's fine. There's a couple of familiar faces in here, though, outside of the regular cast. We have a return, a, a retro tube return of Don Marshall, who we last met in The Incredible Hulk. We do. We do. You, 
Your man will find the vaginas. Yeah, he's got a tiny role in this, but memorable, playing quite a genial cop who has to contend with Dan Briggs' drunk acting. Oh, God. Suddenly, Dan Briggs has got a character. I know. He's singing, he's staggering around, he's being loud and obnoxious. He's having a lovely time. Yeah. Nobody else is. But Dan is. He's drunk acting because he has to try and... It's a, a large chunk of this episode is about getting Orgy Borgy to drink a glass of poisoned water. But he, for some reason, doesn't like drinking water. He goes straight to bed. He's, he takes some pills but doesn't swallow them with water. Uh, even though it's 90 degrees in the hotel, it takes a long time for him to drink any water. So they have to try and wake him up. So Dan has to be loud and obnoxious in the corridor outside the hotel room in order to wake him up. And Don Marshall's having none of it. Why? Eyes are dim, I cannot see, I have not brought my specs with me, my eyes are dim, I cannot see, I oh, I'm sorry, officer, I did not know I was exceeding his limit. That's all right, sir. No, it's not. I won't try to talk you out of the ticket. I was speeding. I deserve it. I was speeding. No, it's okay. You just better get some sleep. You're right, officer. I better. Good night. Uh, sir, your room must be down the other way. No, it's right there. Well, sir, people are trying to sleep. Now keep your voice down. My voice is down. Okay, move along. Now, what's going on here? Where are you cops guarding my room? The other actor I recognised from something else, and this is quite a left-field thing I recognised him from, is Dr Green, the hospital doctor, played by Alan Joseph, who won't be a, an immediately familiar name, but he played the dad in A Razorhead. Oh. Which I don't know if you've ever seen. Nope. So not the dad of the baby, because that's the main guy played by Jack Nance, but th- at the start of the film, Jack Nance's character goes around for dinner at his girlfriend's house, and her dad strangest damn things and it's a, you know, a typical weird David Lynch character but he's very fun in that the, the girls have heard this before but 14 years ago I had an operation on my arm here doctors said I wouldn't be able to use it well, what the hell do they know I said and, and I rubbed it for a half hour every day and then I got so I, I could move it a little and then and I, and I got so I could turn a faucet and and pretty soon I had my arm back again. Now I can't feel a damn thing in it. All numb. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to cut it, you know? Why hasn't this man been given oxygen? I didn't think it was called for, Doctor. This man's nearly comatose. Nurse, oxygen. Yes, Doctor. So yes, he plays Dr. Green in this. So it's lovely seeing him in something else that's not a razor head. I feel like there's a lot of cold rage going on with Dan in this because he he does his best to calm the dad down of the girl and he's like don't you worry about it it's all going to be okay I'm going to take care of it but then with everybody else and and towards the mission itself he is just he doesn't he doesn't care he he is happy to kill everybody he's got the right hum yeah he has he's so ultra professional that he doesn't like being taken advantage of in this way he does not. He does not like being taken advantage of. He's really mardy. He's got a right one on him. <laughs> he really does. So they managed to successfully poison Hoagie Carmichael. What's his name? <laughs> Orgy Corky. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and it makes Gorman. him. Orgy Gorman. It makes him look like 
he's had a stroke, so they, he gets rushed to hospital in an ambulance. Mm. With the most fun... Not a real one, of course. No, but it's the most fun jazz music you've ever heard. It really is. <laughs> it's really odd. It's like this dramatic moment, but it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> it's not like TV music jazz. It's like jazz you'd listen to in a jazz club. Maybe you'd be playing in the radio in the ambulance. Um, <laughs> it could be. To calm everybody down. Yes, it's diegetic it's right. jazz. Yes, that's the chat. Yeah, so he gets rushed to hospital and Dr. Green, he's in on it. So he takes him off to be x-rayed, but he straps him to a spinny table. That looks fun. So it's very Scooby-Doo. It's an incredibly Hanna-Barbera moment. He's strapped to the x-ray table and then Dr. Green pulls this knob that's a bit like a um, pinball knob that releases the little pinball around. He pulls that and then the table rotates through 180 degrees so that there's a different man strapped to the other side of the table. Not even made up, not even with a mask on to make him look like no, this is the thing. Just, they... just, just another man, just a, just a random, much younger man. Yeah, we don't even like we don't even get introduced to him. It's just this <laughs> random unconscious chap. Just like, who are you? Where the hell did you come from? What's going on? No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that there's a person in the bed, and it isn't Augie Gorman. I guess. I mean, th- this was baffling to me. This seemed like a plot hole. Is why they didn't put a mask on him. So he seemed like because the cop who's looking after him within a few minutes goes, "Hang on, this isn't Augie Gorman. This is some other fella. He's much younger." But I guess they want the police to realise they no longer have Augie Gorman. I guess that's why they did that. Maybe so. But anyway, I wanted to go on the spinny table. It looked great fun. It did look great fun. Then, sort of like, if if, if you'd had if if the person had done too many goes, then it, it would have it would have revolved several times, and, and Augie would have still ended up on the top half of the table. <laughs> it would be like that. <laughs> that that's a, that would be such a Hanna Barbera thing. Just the table continually revolving. And it's like, no, it's the wrong guy. And Shaggy's getting yeah. all perturbed and freaked out by the whole thing. Uh, and there's a mummy on one side of it and a Dracula on of the course. other. And then suddenly Scooby-Doo's strapped to the table. We don't quite know how he got there. And <laughs> it's only got two sides, but there's three people. And all, all of that happened. A bit in the hotel, a bit in the hospital. And then there's this big chase across LA where we get to the handoff. There's a big handoff for they're going to trade young Sandy who's being kidnapped with Hoagie Carmichael so that the uh, villains can bump him off. It doesn't happen the first time. No, because they switch Horgan... Horgan... Horgandas. Yes, they switch him with a dummy. Yeah. And so they blow up They blow up the telephone booth that they've put this dummy in and they think, yay, we've got him, we've killed him, woohoo! And then Dan Briggs is like, psych, it's not a real person. And, and then Dan decides to take the opportunity to to threaten to kill Egan, the evil baddie with the green sunglasses. He gets really mean, doesn't he? I like that side of Dan Briggs. I like that side of Dan Briggs. He, because he smiles when he says it. He's like, you know I'm going to kill you. He says, I've got a very special set of skills. I will find you and I will kill you. It's pretty much exactly what he says. I mean, he literally says that, guys. It's literally his line. Now we'll exchange Gorman for the girl my way. You'll wait to hear from me. And one more little thing, Egan. If anything happens to that girl, anything, I'll finish you. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I'll find you and I'll kill you. And you know I can do it. And he smiles when he says it, which is like really chilling and really cold. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what he says. 
because he's also channeling Curly Howard at this point. Certainly. So there's a whole bit where they satisfyingly bamboozle the baddies. The baddies... Egan comes out looking exactly like Bob Rafelson with these weird green glasses, and he comes and he says, "Oh, now I hear Ogie and Hoagie. I'm going to kill you now. Get out of that van." He ta- he comes out and he shoots him with his sh- shotgun, and Orky Gorman falls down. And then Egan says, "Right, you other baddies, you you can go now. Clear off. Run along now, chaps." Yes, you've done your baddie work. As soon as they've gone, Orky Gorman gets up off the floor, and he's got fake blood on him. And then Martin Landau peels off. In in it's it's like a it's a sort of ritual at the end of these episodes. One of them, often Martin Landau, has to peel off the mask, and it's really him. He's really Egan, because the real he Egan is. has been held up by Willie who's been playing a cop, a, a traffic cop, has pulled him over to, in order to delay him. Willie has secretly saved the day and nobody gives him any of the credit. God damn it. Let Willie live. Mm. <laughs> yes, you always say that. Uh, well, it is true. He deserves to. He deserves everything. He He's a wonderful yeah. man. Bless him. And his little cotton socks. <laughs> Very big cotton socks, probably. I guess. I, guess I, don't, I, I, I don't know. I, do, I don't know him well enough. <laughs> No, too polite to look. We've not really spoken about Martin Landau at all, despite the fact he's, like, the biggest name in the whole series. We've not mentioned him at all. He's just too fantastic to name. He is a deserved Oscar winner. It's a shame you have your Johnny Depp phobia. It is. That you haven't yet seen his Oscar-winning performance, because it's a marvellous film, and... And also, you know how I feel about Bela Lugosi. Exactly. You love Bela Lugosi, you love Martin Landau, but on the other side of the seesaw, you can't stand Johnny Depp. I can't bear him. I just can't bear him. I would say it's his least Johnny Deppish role. So you know how to be anybody else but Johnny Depp? Yeah, he's really good. I think I mean I'm I'm not a fan of Johnny Depp. I like I actually did quite like him in the mid nineties when he was doing this sort of role before he became the kind of parody of Johnny Depp that he's become. And I'm also not a big fan of Tim Burton films, but this is a really good Tim Burton film because it's not doing all the things that Tim Burton does that makes it, all his films seem like parodies of Tim Burton films. It's it's the least Tim Burtonish film and the least Johnny Deppish role. And it's got Martin Landau in it. It's got Martin Landau in it playing Bela Lugosi. So I would I would definitely recommend it if you can pinch your nose and put your dislike of Sir Donald of Deppelfen on a <laughs> back burner. I'll try. I, I will try because it, it is it, it's a film I would love to see. It's a marvelous film. Eddie, I want to thank you. These last few days have been a good time. You know, I just. I just wish you could have seen the movie. Uh, no problem. I know it by heart. Okay, so that was Mission Impossible. So now I need to ask you a few little questions. I don't know if you're prepared for this. It's not like this is our first episode. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, which was your favourite and least favourite episode? I liked the last one we watched the most, the Ransom one. Right. That had a lot going on. It had different locations. It had quite an interesting plot. It had quite a nice, satisfying reveal. I think my least favourite was shock because it just left a bit of a nasty taste in the mouth, all that torture. Yes. They were all good. They were all entertaining. But after shock, I kind of thought, oh, do I want to spend time with these people? Train was fine. The other one we didn't really talk about, that was entertaining. So luckily I did watch episode eight because that was my favourite. Which was your least 
favourite and favourite characters? Least favourite, Dan Briggs, Dan Briggs. <laughs> Whoever he may be. Yeah, whichever one of the dark-haired men in suits was Dan Briggs. Yeah. yeah. For, for the lead in the show, I just couldn't get a handle on I couldn't take to him. Favourite, probably either Barney or... Roll in hand. Just... Roll in hand. I mean, none of them were really characters as such because they were, it was so plot-driven that they were more functions. So it was all driven by the actor playing them. They weren't sort of written with huge characters. So, so it was, a, yeah. So, so the ones that leapt off the screen more as actors were, were Barney and Martin Landau playing Roll in Hands. Roll in hand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, good, good choice. Good mm, choice. Well, thank you. I, I can't really argue with that. I should hope not either. Um, no, no. I mean, obviously, my favourite character is Willie. Yes, of course. He was good as well. Genius. Yeah. And, well, he just—I just feel like he—he was—he's just one of those fellows who seems like he's a nice guy. Mm. You know, like he doesn't mind what's going on so long as he can help out a bit. He didn't get a lot of the action, but it wouldn't have been right without him. I like characters like that. He's the strong guy, but he doesn't do any punching or physical violence that I notice. No, no, no. He's, he's, yeah, he's like a big gentle giant type. In, in fact, for a 60s show, there's no punching and bongos. Doesn't, no, hardly a bongo in earshot. No. Very little fighting actually goes on. It's more, it's more literally just messing with people's heads. Yeah, so it's quite refreshing having a 60s show that didn't have any punch-ups at all. There's not a great deal of violence going on in, in Mission Impossible, which, yeah. A relatively low body count as well. Yeah. For a 60s show in yeah. particular, we had quite, even the light-hearted shows, like Get Smart. People were getting had, killed left, right and centre. Yeah, had yeah. quite high body counts, but this, with a few notable exceptions, there weren't that many fatalities in it. Did you have a favourite scene or a favourite sort of aspect of the show? I think my favourite aspect of the show was how mechanical is the wrong word, how clockwork it is. That, like I was saying about how it's a proto-heist movie, that it's all about the fetishization of the you know, the preparations for this thing they're doing. It's very well-organised thing that has to work like a ballet and all the pieces have to fall into place exactly for it to work and everything has to work, be timed to the second and all that sort of thing is very fascinating to watch and I think possibly my least favourite thing about it was was just that series one hadn't quite found its feet yet and so it was doing things like torturing and it just wasn't, it just didn't quite feel comfortable in its own skin quite yet you ever so much for share, for you know letting me share this with you thank you for and for being forcing me to watch patient it. enough anytime <laughs> um and thank you for actually sitting through three episodes rather than just, just the usual two it was my um, pleasure you are the actual best yay if you would like to get in touch with us everybody listening uh, you're more than welcome to our twitter account is at retro underscore tube and our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. We always love to hear from you, and especially if you've got any like, suggestions of shows you'd like to hear us talk about or anything else, really. They're quite genial. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And I think those are literally all the words that I can muster from my poor battered brain. How about you? Would you like to have the last word? <laughs> Oops. I, this is the first I've thought of it again. <laughs> I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs>